We'd like to thank Airbnb for being the presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast miniseries on inclusive travel and tourism, recorded at the Africa Travel Summit 2018. Visit Airbnb.com right now to discover and book unique homes, experiences, and places all over the world. They're all waiting at Airbnb.com. I'm Andy Lemasugu, and my guest on this podcast is Airbnb's Head of Global Policy, Public Affairs, and Communications. In the 1990s, he served in various positions in the Clinton administration, including Press Secretary to Vice President Al Gore and Special Assistant Counsel to President Bill Clinton. He is easily one of the world's most high-profile sharing economy proponents and undoubtedly Airbnb's chief advocate for the economic benefits they aim to promote by leading the global trend towards home sharing and the democratization of travel. Now, stick around to hear us unpack some of the idealistic values influencing Airbnb's strategy and fueling their growth. We'll also be tackling some of the very real challenges that society will need to confront as the world navigates towards a more inclusive future of global travel and tourism. Hi, I'm Chris Lahane, the head of global policy for Airbnb, and looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Chris. Uh, thank you. I'm really excited to uh, participate in this. I'm not sure if I'm a guinea pig or not, but you know, you and I met, I think, for the first time about a year ago in Joburg, and you were as entertaining as you were illuminating. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure it'll be a great conversation. Well, that's very kind of you to say, and certainly not a guinea pig. Um, I've followed your work since you joined the company. There's a lot to unpack in terms of your intent in joining, and certainly a lot of the initiatives that you've spearheaded since being at Airbnb. And so perhaps let's start with the most recent thing you did before Airbnb by way of introducing you know, who and what you are and what you're capable of, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. So um, for about 15 or 16 years, I, had, um, I was a founder um, and principal in a, a firm that I had created that initially really focused on what my original background was, which was um, politics, uh, principally in America. Uh, but the firm, as time went on, really expanded into uh, crisis management um, for big entities facing big challenges. Um, but also uh, because it was just a passion of mine, as we were talking before we jumped on, uh, a lot into the sports and entertainment world. Um, and, uh, and so it was about a third politics, you know, a third crisis management, and a third sports entertainment. And that sounds like quite a diverse uh, selection uh, of activities. But what was great for me was those are all uh, issues that were of great interest to me, passions of mine at some level. Also, Americans are really good at politicizing pretty much everything, yeah. for better or for worse. More so than ever. Um, you know, I think one of the fascinating, we can certainly get into this if you want, um, but one of the fascinating dynamics that's taking place in America right now is the fact that the country really is divided along these blue-red lines. And um, it's uh, almost in a way uh, that people really identify who they are, their identities, their cultural affiliations, uh, based on you know, which political party that they are associated with. So, uh, yes, Americans have generally been good at um, politicizing different things, but I think we live in a incredibly hyper politically charged uh, environment right now. And there was a really interesting uh, factoid, and I actually got this from um, uh, uh, the Ezra Klein podcast. He does a podcast in, in the U.S. where he had a political scientist on um, who sort of put out the they had done a survey and. You know, they asked Republicans if a Republican – they asked voters if, uh, if, if a Republican president wanted to send man to the Mars on a spaceship. Ninety percent of Republicans supported it. 
90% of Democrats oppose it. And then they flipped the question and said a Democrat was proposing this. And you basically got the support that flip-flopped. Um, and I think that really does sort of speak to uh, the hyper-politicization that currently exists you know, in the U.S. along identity lines. And so talk me through you know, leaving that, be- that world behind to join what is essentially one of the, the most well-known uh, tech firms to come out of Silicon Valley, certainly one of the better-known working the shared economy. Yeah, and well, it sort of relates a little bit to what I was just talking about, um, which is I'll back up and tell a little bit of a, a brief story of how I discovered it. Um, so in around 2013, 2014, I have a wife, two boys. They were young at the time, about six and eight. They're still young. They're 11 and 13 now. And we were traveling to Italy and I was trying to find a hotel for us to stay in. And for anyone with kids, they know that if you're actually going to have a vacation with kids, you almost by definition have to have two rooms um, or it's not going to be much of a vacation. And you know, the costs of a, a hotel in Rome in the summer, I might as well just buy the hotel uh, given how expensive they were. And a friend of mine was working at this company that I had vaguely heard about, Air Bed and Breakfast or Airbnb. I wasn't really sure. And she had worked for me in the Clinton administration. And she said, you should check out our site. I said, well, isn't that just for couch surfing? And she said, no, it's just like, you know, you've gone to the beaches and lakes and rented out houses. And I said, yeah. And she says, it's the same type of thing. And so I went, we found a place, incredible, went to Italy, stayed in this incredible neighborhood that I otherwise probably would not have stayed in. And then came back to San Francisco. So I need to meet the, the founders of this. And I met Brian Chesky, our CEO and co-founder. Um, and that's how I developed a relationship. But, but what really ultimately attracted – I mean that's how we began to, to, to have a relationship. But what really attracted me to um, the platform was, uh, was the fact that it was creating – and not perfect, right? We're learning all along as we go forward. But creating a new economic sector that in effect was – and I'm going to use a fancy Silicon Valley term, disintermediating the traditional gatekeeper that historically would have stood at the top of any type of economic system or value chain system, particularly in the industrial age, um, where that entity, the gatekeeper, typically would make the vast majority of the economics. Um, and so I was making the decision in the context of really big questions about, you know, is capitalism, has capitalism been working in a fair and just way? Uh, is it being evenly distributed? And uh, suddenly here is this platform. And again, working on things, not perfect, but but that is, um, has done a good a job as anything I have seen in creating a new model to actually not only drive economic opportunity for folks where 97% of the economics are actually made by the little guy because it basically takes out the gatekeeper role, um, but also creates a community-based platform the platform only does well if the hosts do well. Hosts only do well if guests do well. Guests only do well if communities want them there. And you know when that wheel works, incredible network effects. And when that wheel works, it drives a network effect. It also drives a social contract. Most, particularly industrial age models, are based on a small number of winners and a lot of losers. Right? The Airbnb model is designed to have multiple winners. In fact, it only works for us. It only works for the host, it only works for the guests, it only works for those communities if everyone ends up being a winner on that. And at a time when I do think we need to start thinking about what type of models exist out there uh, to make sure that people are actually benefiting uh, in a fair, just, even way uh, from capitalism, I think this is a really interesting model, not only in the space that it's in, which is travel and tourism, but even more broadly. Um, and I think as governments and societies go forward, there's going to have to be a process here where people begin to identify 
which type of economic systems and models do they want to incentivize and, and support because they're helping to address some of the larger issues. So you started this interview by complimenting me. I, I'm going to compliment you because I have to tell you that um, you have a gift for narrative and uncanny gift. And kudos to Brian Chesky uh, for identifying that gift and realizing what was coming for Airbnb in the years subsequent to you joining uh, and, and sort of, I think, realizing the need for someone with as powerful a gift for narrative um, on the team. That's the one piece. The other piece is it's obviously not a, a narrative you craft on your own. It has to be backed right from the top, I imagine, and, and right through the organization. But to my mind, and I've said this to you before, the last time we, you know, we, we were in Joburg together, is that you guys have the most immaculate rhetoric around the idealized notion or even the imagined ideal, if you like, of what the shared economy could and should be like. Mm -hmm. So give me a sense of whether or not you saw things the way I do when you were first approached to help firstly craft and broadcast Airbnb's mission and help policymakers and perhaps even ecosystem nobodies like me who, who buy into these notions quite wholehearted. You're, you're being very humble in terms of <laughs> your stature. No, come on. Let's face it. I mean, I'm just a guy who, 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 you know, my wife and I have decided to sell our cars. You know, we, we, we use ride sharing services. We use Sweep South to, to hire, you know, the best possible house help. And we've since used Airbnb since I met you. I mean, I've gotten over that hurdle. I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. And I'm, I'm happy to say that worked out well. And so I think there's this ideal that you've started to describe that I buy into. Yeah. But there's also to lean into what we discussed up front around politicization and, and the messaging around why and how and who this benefits. Yeah. That I think it's important to have people like you help frame this for people. Um, uh, and so, yeah, give me a sense of whether or not you thought of it in those terms. I, I, I did. And, well, I appreciate the comments you're, you're very you're, – you're very eloquent in how you translated it. The harder questions coming, I, you know, around what this practically means, yeah. and, and that's fine. But I do think there are good things to sort of yeah. highlight, and, and so, this is not smoke up your chimney yeah, at all. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, I'll answer that. First, I want to come back to something, you know, I think, you know, the way we talk about it and think about it, there certainly is an awful lot of that happening, but also an element of it is aspirational, right, of where we want this uh, want to get to. Um, uh, and so, you know, the longer perspective on this is, yes, at the end of 2015, when I made the decision to join uh, Airbnb, um, you know, to me, I saw it as what the future could look like if we're trying to design solutions to help address economic inequality. You know, I've traveled all around the world. In the U.S., typical host rents their home 42 times a year, makes about $6,700. Those numbers will go up or down a little bit depending where you are in the world. You know, here in Cape Town, typical host I think is doing about thirty times a year and makes about thirty three hundred U.S. dollars. So a little bit different economics. But the bigger point remains the same, which is I've traveled all around the world, met with governors, presidents, prime ministers. I don't mean to drop names, but I've yet to see a government program, you know, at a time of economic inequality that is actually generating that type of economics by allowing people to use their homes uh, to supplement their incomes, and also at the same time, take people who typically now are getting more segmented um, because of online tools and actually putting them together offline. Uh, and to me, that was a really compelling value proposition. Um, 
Uh, and what I saw at Airbnb was an opportunity to help work with some people who had a real values, a real sense of mission uh, about wanting that model to succeed, uh, both because it's really important in the space that, that Airbnb is in, but probably even more important, um, the ability to create a model that, that others could look at as we look at some of these larger issues in society. And I'll just do a quick analogy, if, if I could. I think a comparable time period, in, at least in, in, in U.S. history that we're in right now, and I know a lot of your audiences are, are, are from the U.S. I think San Jose and Chicago are some of your biggest. Partners. Okay, so here's something for nothing. We, we were talking just before this interview about how San Jose is our biggest American city. Sorry, San Fran and New York City. You guys got beat out in the last year. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, Chris just drops that he just happens to know, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the, <laughs> the mayor of that city. I'm like, dang, bro. Uh, mayor Sam Licardo, a very good man. I went to law school together with him. Uh, uh, Sam is someone you should have on your on your podcast. I will make sure I connect you guys after this. Well, clearly, I mean, it's just it's just hilarious, you know, just being in a room with someone who who is just so readily connected to some of the the figures that I only know because I've owned a TV in my life. You know what I mean? That's really just a function of I'm old. Um, but but the point I was going to make, I think, the, the a comparable time period that, that in U.S. history that you could say that we're in now was. Uh, uh, the Gilded Age, and the Gilded Age roughly took place 1870 to about 1905, uh, and it was a time period where um, the Industrial Age really was not distributing the benefits of capitalism in a fair way. Uh, enormous economic inequality, enormous public unrest uh, 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 because a sense that they weren't being treated fairly. What that produced ultimately was the Progressive Era. Progressive Era produced some new approaches to how to think about capitalism. These ideas were radical at the time. They don't look as radical from the perspective of today, but at the, at the time they were. The concept of a minimum wage, that was, you know, had been talked about but never really implemented it at a large scale. The concept of a 40-hour work week, a weekend, women's right to vote in the U.S., child safety laws. All of these things came out and were designed really to make sure that capitalism worked better. Um, I think we're in a comparable time. By the way, I should also say in other parts of the world – the responses to those issues ended up being communism, fascism. Uh, so there's any number of ways you know time periods like this can, can play themselves out. Um, but I do think we're in a comparable time period right now with the added element of the identity politics, um, even complicating it more. And so you know, what are the tools and systems that governments potentially want to look at to incentivize, to promote, to support – uh, to ultimately begin addressing some of these issues. I mean, I just saw an incredible statistic out of the U.S. Uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics on it was Thursday or Friday. Three-fourths of all the jobs created in the U.S. since the Great Recession are jobs that do not allow people to actually live a middle-class life. I think there's somewhere around 4 million jobs in the upper Midwest that have never been recouped. Um, and so, yes, in the U.S., we have generally good economic data from a historical perspective, but people out there are still really in a challenging situation, um, and I do think we need to start to think big and broad about what the solutions to that are going to be. I mean, we're here in South Africa. We're here at a township uh, in Cape Town called Lango. So I'm actually going to okay. use that as a per Okay, go ahead. I don't want to so, that. yeah, so I mean, great segue. Thanks for, thanks for trying to – there. Yes, of course. Because <laughs> I, I wanted to bring it home now where it's like, okay, um, there's something you're up to symbolically in bringing what is the first conference of its kind. Um, and I say that carefully because, I mean, there have been conferences or, you know, the hospitality industry conferences that have come before and perhaps travel ones before. But what you are 
trying to do, I think, is unique here in the sense that you have a much broader view to who one counts as a stakeholder in the business. So typically, little old Andile, in the minds of the well-heeled few who have in the past controlled travel, hospitality, what have you, wouldn't necessarily count as a stakeholder to invite to a conference or to engage in any sort of meaningful way. So you've, one, broadened the scope for what it means to be part of this, quote-unquote, inclusive travel tourism industry on the continent, number one. The other thing you've done is you've brought it to a, a, a township called Gualanga, which is steeped in so much history and, and tradition in, in South Africa. It's produced incredible creative sporting and cultural talent that has impacted music art. Yeah, I mean, that's incre- uh, I, I don't want to interrupt you at all, yeah. but, the, but the music and art that comes out of this place is pretty incredible. <laughs> Shout out to you, Brenda Fassi, who's not with us anymore. Um, but I guess, you, so you bringing it here to what is essentially a community center run by the government here, the, the local government in Cape Town, not the most convenient or obvious choice for where to host an event uh, of this nature. So I am onto the symbolism of what you are trying to do. So, Please sort of spell it out for me, what that symbolism is and how it speaks to the ideals you have. Because after this, I want to talk about the not so neat and tidy, idealistic side of what this means for us. But what are you trying to achieve here and what are you trying to stay? What statement are you making here? Because you can tell I like to tell stories. I'll tell a brief story on, 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 on this. Um, Go ahead. Uh, so there's a proverb in Africa that you vote with your feet. Um, when I got married to my brilliant and beautiful wife, Andrea, in 2001, we voted with our feet and came to Cape Town for our honeymoon. Um, we did Cape Town, Joburg, ultimately Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, Zambia. Um, and uh, when we were here in Cape Town, my wife's a human rights lawyer, uh, we had wanted to come to Langa or Gualanga, which I th- actually think means like the sun shines on the king. I think that's how it translates. Or some Gualanga. So yeah, I mean, yes. Okay. okay. Let, let me not let me not let, let me not speak out of turn because I'm not closer speaking. But you're there or thereabouts. You're in the neighborhood. Somewhere in the neighborhood, um, and that actually is a good segue for me, which is we were in the neighborhood and wanted to be able to come up and spend some time in the township in a respectful and appropriate way because it is the history of Cape Town's the history of, of South Africa. And despite the fact that we were literally in the neighborhood, maybe eight, 10 miles, 15 kilometers from, from Lango, we, we couldn't get here. You, know, you logistically couldn't find someone to drive you here. You had no way to get over here. And you know, that always stuck with me. And so you flash forward when I came to Airbnb and you know, last year I saw you in Johannesburg. I came down to Cape Town, and I did a night and about a day and a half, two days in Kyalicha, which is a neighboring uh, township. And um, we had launched a program to try to train a group of, uh, of folks to be Airbnb hosts. And by the way, learning lesson, there have always been home sharing in these townships. I mean, how else were people going to travel and come and stay? Thank you for addressing that, because I, I, I spoke to someone who I, who I told I was going to, you know, listen to the, of the show and a mate, who, who I told that I was going to speak to you. And he was like, yeah, but please ask him about the fact that this stuff's been happening well, anyhow. Like, these numbers aren't exactly Airbnb making magic here. I think the takeaway that, that we had was, as Airbnb is at the front end of its growth in Africa, you know, three and a half million people traveled on it, you know, 
know, since we've been created, three million of that has been here in, in, in South Africa. You know, we've really been thinking about this concept of uh, of inclusive travel um, that rolls up to a healthy travel vision. And ultimately what that's about is making sure that uh, as many people as possible can benefit from the platform. And absolutely people have been traveling between the townships, staying in people's homes for generations. That has taken place long before Airbnb. I, mean, I always joked that home sharing actually existed before the hotels. The hotels disrupted home sharing. Now it's maybe coming full circle. Uh, but it's always existed here. I think what we were looking at is um, can we actually help generate international travel, a broader travel impact? We referenced the music and the art scene here. There are people who want to come and experience that. Uh, there are people who want to come and spend their economics uh, on that. And you know, was there a way for us to be able to use the platform? What we're doing here at the summit is really an extension of that. So I had a dinner with a group of, uh, of the hosts. I stayed with a woman by the name of Maria. She's here with us today. But over the course of that dinner, and I had talked about this earlier, it was a dinner that became a breakfast that went so long into the night. You know, they had talked about how we can sort of learn some lessons to be able to support that. And so this summit really is about opportunity for us to listen and to learn from the people who've been doing it in Africa, uh, including here for quite some time, so that we can actually understand how to help and do our part. Uh, to be clear, like we're just at the beginning. Uh, I'm not going to be here saying that we're creating life-changing things in Langa, you know, or in Kyalicha. But I do think having the conversation and then figuring out some of the stuff that we can do off of this, um, you know, is certainly something that we can do to help bring that type of inclusive travel onto the platform, particularly when, you know, Airbnb is on pace to have a billion people a year on the platform by 2028. You know, we're the biggest player in travel and tourism. Um, and I do think I talked earlier about our community model, how all these pieces have to work in order. You know, but that includes making sure that communities like this are actually being able to benefit from the platform. And I really want to underscore, like, we're not saying that they're already benefiting. We have to work at it to get to that place. So I feel like there are two extremes that are possible here. There's my pet peeve, which is companies of the size and scale of, of an Airbnb making the mistake of sort of treating Africa as this massive CSR project yes. on, one, on one end. I mean, look, CSR is great, and I don't want to at all discourage people from doing it. It's actually a really interesting book that just came out about um, by um, a former New York Times reporter called Chanara Honda. I may be mispronouncing his name, but it's all about how you know elites have effectively tried to take over government responsibilities. And one of the examples is how CSR works. Look, I think there's a place in time uh, for CSR. I certainly wouldn't discourage it. We certainly do our share of it. I think ultimately, to really move the needle on this stuff, it has to be inherent and intrinsic to the service, the product, in our case, the platform. Right. Okay. So that's one extreme to avoid. And I, I can see that you've given some thought to how not to do that. Uh, on the other extreme, I think there's also the possibility of, in the context of what surrounds us currently, is to err on the side of fetishizing elements of perhaps history or legacy yeah. of places and people uh, that by default end up stuck with a bunch of people who want to come and observe the ongoing systemic problems of where they're from, yeah. as opposed to take them to where they need to be. Yeah. To me, I see this as a sliding scale, and I do want us to sort of talk about yeah, it a little should. bit. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, I, I, I think that I mean, what you do not want, and I'm going to use a pretty extreme example, and, and I'll try to do so uh, in a sensitive way, um, but what you do not want, uh, and we certainly aren't going to do, you know, is people showing up in a place like Langa in a bus 
taking photos of people through a bus window. That would merely, I think, extend and reinforce some of the injustices that uh, have historically taken place, and, and in fact, which this is at some level of physical reflection of, right? I mean, Langa is a community that was established after people were forcibly removed from what is called District 6 in Cape Town, right? There's, there's a legacy here, which is not a good legacy. That said, there is a robust, strong community here. Um, and so how do you find that right place to intersect? And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to learn about here. You had hit on something that I think is, is absolutely critical, which is, you know, how can you find ways for people to use the platform consistent with how the platform was designed, not as a some special one-off. Again, there's times and places for that. Um, but to be able to actually generate that type of economics that potentially can make a difference in their lives. But, you know, we had, and this isn't in Africa, but this was in, in India. There's an organization called SIWA, which represents a million plus working women. Um, and these are historically, you know, incredibly underserved communities. And what we're doing, we talked about in Kailicha, and which we're, we're launching here with our Africa Academy, is actually based on some stuff that we had originally done in India. And, you know, we have a core group. It's not a huge number. Like, I don't want to, like, overstate this stuff, but I think it's around 50, 55 women hosts in some of these really rural communities. And over two years, uh, the impact on their lives, again, it's only 50, 55, but it has been pretty tremendous. I met a woman who, when she started, was a day laborer. She now owns six homes, all on Airbnb. She is a successful businesswoman now in a two-year span. I met another woman who now counts, you know, she was someone, she said it in her own words, I won't be anywhere near as elegant, but uh, she said she was someone who never, ever imagined leaving the environs of her village and now has had people from Norway, Australia, the U.S., Germany, Latin America, spend time with her. And she talks about how the world has really been opened up to, to her and her family. And that program is actually working for us from a business perspective. We, we do well un, under, under the program because people are going and staying in these places. They're coming for a variety of different reasons. But as a result, those hosts are seeing their lives fundamentally changed. And I think, to me, that is where you want to get with this type of stuff. Now, you'd like to scale it at a bigger level than 50, but we're just at, at, at the front end of that. And what it does show is the potential to use the platform consistent with how the platform was designed to actually impact people in a really inclusive way. We're taking a quick break to thank the presenting sponsor for this series, Airbnb. But can you imagine a world without travel? We certainly can't. And that's why at African Tech Roundup, we reckon that the opportunity to travel and experience everything our world has to offer should be something everyone can enjoy. Airbnb happens to think so too. They also believe that Africa's travel and tourism industry can do a lot to sustainably empower and economically elevate underserved communities, which is why they hosted the very first ever Africa Travel Summit in Cape Town's Walanga Township in 2018, where this series was recorded. Airbnb can't wait to put you onto millions of unique homes, experiences, and places all over the world. Book now at Airbnb.com. And now, back to the episode. So let's talk about like the numbers, because that's some of the other criticism, which is, you know, you're selling Africa as this big inclusive travel opportunity and you want to lead the way here. But, you know, some are saying like the numbers you're putting down, the dollars you drop in, you know, don't speak to 
the bullish notions or anecdotes you've just shared? You look at um, what we did over the last year, basically last year, which is we wanted to run a test program in Kyalicha with a group of those hosts that was successful. Uh, we've now expanded it. We just came out of uh, a training session with what we're calling the Airbnb Academy uh, in Soweto, uh, where we had 50 hosts from townships around uh, South Africa. Uh, our intent going forward into 2019 is to expand those numbers and actually begin to go into other African countries. And I think you know what's really important for us, yes, we're high profile, we're a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, depending on how you're using it. Um, we're, you know, we're not a public company. We're still a relatively young company. Um, and a fairly well-heeled private company. Yes. Um, although we, we can, you know, don't have to get into all the deep, but obviously there's a big distinction between what you're worth on paper versus what you're actually worth if, worth if you're actually in a public market, right? But, but I'm not using that as an excuse, just merely try and tell you where we are on our story and our narrative. And look, at anyone in the world would want to be in our position. So I'm not, I believe I'm not trying to uh, uh, downplay that. But I do think that, you know, what we've said is that, you know, it's important to listen and to learn and apply those. Some of the things that we're going to do are not going to work. So to be fair, if you guys just came in here like Bulls and China Shop, even if it worked, yeah. like even if like it was a commercial success and people seemed to love it, I'm one of those people who'd be like, I, I hate the way they're doing this, well, maybe. I'll tell you, and I'm not going to use their name because I don't want to do anything because I think their intention was, was, was really good. But when I was in Kyalicha last year, I heard a story about you know, an international entity who had just sort of plopped down some stuff in the township without necessarily having gone and spent time developing relationships, hearing feedback. And it wasn't necessarily, at least from the people I heard, I don't want to, you know, I didn't talk with them, I didn't take a poll or anything like that. But people kept talking about that as a lesson for us, which is spend time listening, learning before you move forward. You know, it's ultimately about trying to figure this out the right way and, and in a respectful way and, and taking the feedback from the community and moving forward with it. Um, you sort of look at where things are in Africa writ large. You know, Africa is, you know, below where the, Nash, the global waterline is in terms of the amount of travel and tourism economics that are being generated. I suggested to someone, and I was not trying to defend you in any way, I just thought, look, if I was head of growth or whatever it was for this region and um, South Africa sounds like a smart place to start. I mean, given it's slightly further ahead of the curve than the rest of the yeah. continent in terms of like internet penetration, all the sort of foundational things yeah. that make Airbnb work in, yeah. certain, in other places. Yeah. And it kind of made sense that you guys run experiments here. I think this is only an issue because, and this is not just an Airbnb thing. It's an issue simply because I think companies in general like put out those numbers yeah. And unless there's like a press release with like $10 million or 80, whatever it is, um, it doesn't really, you know, make the headline. Um, but I think that's what gets people who are about the numbers going, listen, we know how much Airbnb is worth. We have an idea of what R&D is spending over there. And like, this is not a lot of money, what they're saying they're spending on the continent or growth opportunities in certain markets. Yes. Do you want to address that? I do want to address it because, I mean, I think you had adroitly raised the CSR issue. Yes, you could easily write a big check and it's a CSR contribution. And I would um, you know, contend uh, that if you actually get that network effect working, the flywheel working, and you're beginning to see signs that it is, um, not only in, in South Africa, but in a number of markets uh, throughout Africa. Which other markets would you say are working as well as what you've just described as successes in South Africa? Yeah, so uh, for all the reasons that you pointed out, right, South Africa is by far you know, the leader here. In Africa, but what we've seen over the last year is 
anywhere between 150 to 200% growth in places like Ghana, Nigeria, not quite 200%, but significant growth along those lines um, in Zimbabwe. Um, Shout out to you, Zimbabwe. I have to do this every time Zimbabwe yes, comes yes, up. So. Yes, yes. Well, I, I, I knew you were here. So, um, and so, you know, I think we see, you know, enormous promise uh, in some of these places. And what we know, and it's, you know, it's, it's the brilliance of what the founders came up with, which is once that network effect kicks in, it, it, it has a multiplier and a momentum effect. And so, you know, our broader point here is that if we can make this a commercial success, you know, that is going to be because the way our platform works, again, we drink, I drink a lot of Kool-Aid, I drink it copiously, um, but that network effect drives that we do well, hosts do well, guests do well, communities do well, that social contract community model that we've talked about. Um, and that almost by definition means that people who live in Langa, uh, people who live in Soweto, people who live in Kailicha, they may not be making as much money as someone who lives on the beach in you know, on Speyside in, in Cape Town, but they're going to be having economics that have historically not necessarily been available, for, particularly from some of these international travelers. Um, and so I think our focus has been how can we really like, get this right? But Africa as a continent, it's such a mosaic, right? 54 different countries. Those countries themselves are very different. I think it does a disservice at times talking about it as one, as if it's one monolith, but for the purposes of this conversation with that qualifier, this is a continent that has at times had its resources leveraged by others and used by others. Emerging markets are going to... I love that. At times, you're so polite. I was trying to be very respectful and polite because, look, I'm, I'm not from here and, and you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily... For but I, I, I was messing with you and I, and I think you've been part of Airbnb at a time where they've gone through, I believe, the largest pivot, certainly um, product extension since its launch. Uh, this, this notion of experiences, yeah. not just this utility that helps you, yeah. you know, find a place when you need it, yeah. but truly helps you insert yourself, perhaps respectfully, thoughtfully into a, a community. Yes, we're in the travel and tourism sector, but I think what we're really in is the front end of a new economy or a, a new economic revolution, right? You've had an industrial age, you had a service economy, people are calling this the digital age. But I think what you're about to enter into uh, is some version of an experience economy. Um, automation is going to replace and um, displace a lot of the jobs that you know have existed for a long time. Um, but it's going to create other opportunities. And I think a lot of that is going to be based on people looking to spend their resources on experiences. And I'm not just using the word experiences for the, what's on the Airbnb platform. But writ large, and I think the nature of work is going to change pretty dramatically. Uh, and I think coming back to that community model, platforms like these will really be able to help support what that experience economy may look like in ways that are going to allow people in the most optimistic and aspirational way to be able to pursue stuff that they genuinely, gen genuinely have a passion for and an interest in. If you're a musician, you're suddenly going to be able to use these platforms right, to actually create your own Music can be able to distribute it. You have a podcast. You have a talent for it. You have a passion for it. You're able to use some of the infrastructure out there now to create your own business model off of that. Um, You've actually just given me an idea that never occurred to me until this, this minute. Listeners of this podcast who would love to hang out with this podcaster and 
and visit Johannesburg and experience it through his lens. Give your brother a shot, because if, if this is something you're interested in, maybe I might create an experience around it. Is this what you're getting at? That's what I'm getting at. I mean, imagine if you're someone who loves to cook, right? Suddenly you can be in a business where maybe you're having a couple people a couple times a week over your house and you're making some extra money doing that. Maybe you're cooking meals for others, but it's a high-end type of activity. You're a musician, right? You can actually start to do some music classes in a way that potentially have think- jam sessions. That's right. I mean, and, and you're actually doing stuff that I'll give you a, a little example. And it's again early on, but we have this partnership with something called the World Surf League. It's sort of the professional surfers uh, sports league, and our partnership with them is on, on the experiences platform. So you can travel to where they may be competing or where they're based out of, and actually be able to do an experience with one of these incredible professional surfers. You know, some of these surfers do well, but the experiences is giving them an ability to sort of add to their income. And they're able to pursue what they really love, which is their surfing, as the focal point and even be able to use it to extend their revenue in different ways, right? Connect with their with the audiences, sell merch. Okay, so listen, uh, I, I'm kind of... I'm giving yeah. the aspiration, right? I mean, look at that, but, you know... I'm kind of sold. So I want to I follow through with this because I'm kind of sold. I'm just thinking, what do you call what we're talking about? Because we're seeing big, powerful tech firms stumble on defining what it is they are when you compare it to what they set out to do. So what do you call what this is internally? And, and how would you want the rest of the world to think about this? And speak, speak to Africa where, again, we're behind the curve and we're observing this happen elsewhere. And we're like, we're not sure we want this in the way it's happening in Spain or wherever else. So, I mean, I refer to it, and you know, Brian talks an awful lot about this as, as well. You know, really is this experiences economy. Uh, and again, not experiences as in capital E, this is a product that we sell, but, but really um, how the nature of work is going to evolve. And then you can think of all the policies that may flow from that. You start to think about you know, who's making what on a per unit exchange and the person who's actually creating the actual product or service. You know, why shouldn't they have a majority wage? Or you could call it something, right? They're actually making the majority of the economics off each of those exchanges since they're responsible. And they can actually do that because there's a platform that allows them, they control their hours, they control when they work, how they work, who they work with, um, you know, with appropriate uh, safeguards around that. But to me, that's where I I think this is potentially going. And, you know, the example I will give uh, that exists here in in Cape Town is I learned about this last time I was here, right? I've talked about some of the stuff I've done, uh, but there is something that you're probably familiar with and it's called a, if I I may mispronounce it, but I think a braai. Yes, a braai. Because you did that okay. okay that's good. Um, and a barbecue. Yes, it's, it's, it's a barbecue, but the barbecue I experienced was at a different level. And there was a couple uh, that do it. Neither of them come out of the professional food services business. Uh, one had actually been, I think, the editor. Um, they both, both came out of reporter background, actually. Um, one was an editor of a travel magazine. The other was, was a writer. But they walked you through a bit of the history of the area through the Bry. I mean, they brought some great wine from the wine region here, Franchuk Stellenbosch, explained to you the lamb, actually what type of food and grass and plants the lamb eats, how it all relates to the history of the place. And um, the food was so good, I took a lamb shank and stuck it in my suit jacket, you know, inside pocket. I had it for breakfast the next morning. It was incredible. But they had such a passion for it, you know, and they were doing this in addition to their regular freelance writing jobs. But it clearly was a passion of theirs. And I just use that as a small example of, you know, you can see where the world's going. You can see someone who's a freelance reporter 
doing writing on stuff that they're interested in, combining it with other passions. And suddenly that's a very different type of lifestyle and, and potentially you know, a more meaningful way of people uh, working and engaging in society. So I have really just one, maybe two questions to, to close this off. Let's talk about the tax. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So my wife and I have embraced the sharing economy. I more than she. And we've sold our cars. We, we read sharing. I think I mentioned this. Whenever I wax lyrical on the benefits this has been, this has been great for us. We were able to see two extra countries on our last tour to, to Asia. Yada, yada, yada. Because of the savings and yada, yada. We don't, you know. Um, she's like, I hope you tell people about the convenience tax, yeah. right? Which is absolutely true. There's definitely things we lose yeah. as a family from a convenience standpoint, a standpoint. Sometimes you just don't want to share a car with somebody yeah. or right. you don't want to run to some stranger right, driving right, right, you somewhere. Right, right. Or you hate the fact that it's the same guy from the other day and he yeah. remembers you and you hope he didn't. You don't want to get in the car with me if you're a person who doesn't like to talk. I will ask you 100 questions before the car rides over. So, um, so I, Which is why I'm glad you are working for Airbnb and not Uber, <laughs> and not Uber or Taxify or someone. <laughs> yeah. So here's the deal. I, I'm using that as sort of an analogy for playing in this space, you know, the ideals you've, we've, we've been talking about. I think cynics struggle with the oversimplification applied when the upside is spoken about without discussing that there are taxes on the way to this ideal, assuming we're going to get there at some point, I certainly hope we will, that there will be taxes we as a society need to pay, there are certain inconveniences that we're going to need to stomach or be willing to absorb, and certain things that will break in, in ways that perhaps are unacceptable in certain instances where we might need to decide perhaps in this circumstance, the application of this technology or platform might not be appropriate. Give me a sense of how you think of these things and how you frame the tax on society as we adopt, you know, technologies and platforms and tools on our way to the ideal you've, you've spoken about. Yeah. So first and foremost, you know, I originally come out of government and, you know, continue to be, um, you know, a believer that, uh, government ultimately needs to be leading on this and that platforms, you know, I used to use the word and I've used it a lot, you know, need to be responsible, but everyone's saying that now. And so I think it's almost going beyond being responsible, but being a value add contributor to helping government be able to figure this stuff out because we still do live for most of the people in the world in small D democracies. And those democracies, you know, are based on, a philosophy comes out of the Enlightenment era that ultimately what you're trying to do is create self-government so that you're optimizing for human happiness. I mean, that's in a very simplistic way of defining it, but that means that government has to play a real significant role in trying to figure out how you balance all these issues because you've heard me use this analogy before. We're building the car, building the road, building the rules of the road. Some people are throwing rocks at it. Like there's no playbook for this. If you think about the industrial age, we talked about some of the changes that took place uh, to make it more fair during the progressive era, that played itself out over 250 years. This is all happening 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Because sometimes the perception from the outside is companies, powerful companies, successful companies like Airbnb, see this as a zero-sum game and you know what will break will break and what won't won't. No, I, I think that's caused some of the problems in, in, in the world today. I think that's that's some of the challenges that we face, Right. That's why I was, you know, trying to be really careful by saying I think it's more than being responsible. It's, it's, you know, it's playing a proactive role in trying to come up with solutions and spending time with government. I think governments have been challenged, and this is not new to this, that they typically look for old solutions to a new thing. 
you know, when electricity first came out in the 1880s, cities initially tried to ban electricity. They thought it was going to make cities less safe. Think about that. They tried to apply the gas lamp laws. The gas lamp industry opposed it. You know, it took 20-some-odd years to really be able to transition. You ultimately ended up with utilities, right, which was a new form of how you could govern and regulate those new things. What, what I'm saying is that I think the stuff now is just moving faster than it did then, which is putting enormous pressures on government, which I think puts an even bigger burden and responsibility on the platforms to proactively and aggressively work with those governments and be willing to take haircuts. I'm saying that because I have no hair, but um, be able to take an impact you know, to their business bottom line, certainly in the short term, in order to be able to make things work. Again, I wanna, I've said this a couple of times. We're not perfect on this. I think a couple of years ago, we took a step back and in the context, particularly in the U.S. and, and some European places, wanted to really make sure that we fundamentally believe we're helping people stay in their homes but certainly didn't want to impact the housing affordability and accessibility market. And so in any number of places around the world, we have either self-enforced or actually come up with enforcement regimes and regulatory structures so that governments, particularly city governments, feel like they're able to have some control over it. They would not have been able to do it unless we actually gave them the tools, gave them the data, shared with them. You know, In the case of London, at the mayor's request, Mayor Khan you know, asked us to enforce a 90-day ban that's sort of 90-day uh, limit that distinguishes between when you have to get a professional license because you're running a commercial operation. The city of London has no effective way to actually enforce it. I think as of today, we're the only platform that does it. So we stop people when they get to 90 days, right? That impacts us from a business perspective, but I think it's the right thing to do in terms of demonstrating what you're trying to do to, to work with these these cities. I actually think there's probably a better long-term solution than finding a 90 days. It's a little bit of an arbitrary number, but I appreciated what the mayor was trying to do, which is ultimately to address an issue. And by the way, the issue of housing is really complex. There's any number of things. People aren't making as much. There has not been the same building of supply. There's a bunch of issues that, that come into it. But I think at the end of the day, you know, us recognizing that we really had to play a role there, even if it was going to have an impact and making the bet that that's ultimately in our long-term business interest because that's in the long-term interest of society. So I'm going to have to do the BBC thing and say we're going to have to leave it Is there. Your voice going to change? You're going to have some deep intonations. You actually have a pretty good BBC voice. So Chris oh, that Lehane. Was setup, that was a setup. Oh, I was supposed to just receive it. Yes, and yes, Ali, what, what um, slam dunk it. Yes, yes, an alley-oop. alley-oop. Those, the, 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 the folks in San Jose who are big uh, Golden State Warriors fans would recognize that as an alley-oop to KD. An alley-oop to KD, indeed. Well, listen, um, we'll have to leave it there. Chris Lehane, uh, I must thank you in, in signing off. Your rhetoric's on point. I've got a ton more questions, which I can't get to. I also don't mind leaving it here because we like to say here, oversimplification is the enemy. And I think what we've achieved here today is to demonstrate that we all benefit from you getting it right and in frankly our government's getting it right and us as stakeholders being you know suitably a part of the process which we're i think one step in the right direction by doing this podcast so thanks again uh, thank you it was it was a lot of fun and uh, maybe we can get you to san francisco we can actually take you up to san jose down to san jose actually technically that would be as the kids say gangster <laughs> that'd be big time baby yes <laughs> that would be gangster all right thanks again <laughs>